the dream was I have to put everything I have in this because I might not make $30 million. I might make $100,000. It's better than getting evicted for 210 euros. There was a point around like 15 that I stuck with it. And that's joined uh, Philathletikos. And I joined him. When I got to the team, my job was to mop the floor. I did it a thousand times. I came from a mentality that I had to do something in order for me to survive. I couldn't sit on my butt and things happened for me. The first time uh, we heard about the, the, the Kumbu brothers was about Thanasis. It wasn't about Yanis. Thanasis was super athletic. Uh, a couple of uh, teams in the first division wanted to, to get him. It would be fans that would leave the pros to come see us play because the basketball we would play was incredible. This was the whole buzz in Greece. At some point, somebody said that Thanasis also has a younger brother who may be more talented. Can you tell us your name? My name is Jansen uh, Kukumbo. What is your goal for your career? I want to be NBA, NBA player. Everybody was talking about a tall guy with uh, huge hands who was jumping uh, all over the place, so I wanted to witness it on the court. He was like a young Magic Johnson. What kind of basketball player are you? I can jump, I can shoot, I can pass the ball. I can do everything in the court. His feel of the game, this was different. He knew what was going on around him, and the guy had never played organized basketball in his life. It was the first game that I came and watched play. I think I had like 27 and won the game. I said, Janis. It's like, what the? You're pretty good. <laughs> good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hope. My name is Ashley Lentz. I'm one of the pastors. We're so glad you're worshiping with us on this beautiful March Sunday morning. And because it's March, it is like really basketball season. It's been basketball season for a while. I think I've shared with you that I love basketball a lot. I've been following Caitlin Clark very closely as a Hawkeye myself. I have lots of feelings about her going to the WNBA. We could talk about it later, but I'm very excited for her, but also very sad that she'll be leaving Iowa. Uh, this will be her last season. But my husband is a born and raised Wisconsinite. So he grew up cheering for the Milwaukee Bucks. And this is a new documentary released on Amazon Prime about Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks star. And uh, all week, Tyler had been telling me, you gotta watch this documentary. The problem is he was watching it like we'd crawl into bed and he would turn it on. And by the time I'm in bed and my head hits the pillow, I'm asleep. So I had not seen it, but our sermon, uh, our text was about God's hopes and dreams for us. Uh, how, how the prophets show up and prophesy some hope in times of darkness. And so I was like, I called him this week and I was like, is that Giannis documentary? Did he talk about hopes and dreams? He's like, yes, 
You need to watch it. So anyway, this was the documentary uh, about Giannis Antetokounmpo. It's called Giannis, A Marvelous Journey on Amazon Prime. Full disclosure, it is a documentary on Prime, and so it is unedited, so there's a little bit of explicit language, like a few F-bombs. So really great movie, but just warning if you want to go home and watch it with your family. Disney also made a movie about Giannis a couple years ago called Rise. That's much more family-friendly, but this documentary was fantastic. It documents how he became this kind of star in, uh, in uh, the Bucks uh, in, uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks. And um, I love in that clip where they ask him, as this young kid, he's probably 15 in that interview, they say, what's the goal for your career? And he, he kind of like nonchalantly says, be an NBA. I want to be an NBA player. That's pretty cool. But Giannis did not have a life where hopes and dreams were really a reality. His parents were uh, immigrants from Nigeria to Athens, Greece. This is a time in Athens when immigrants weren't really welcome, and his family looked very different uh, than the normal population of Athens. And so Giannis had a very kind of rough, traumatic childhood, growing up uh, literally living day to day. Uh, At four years old, he started selling goods to tourists with his brothers uh, to put food on the table for that night. He remembers being evicted and like wheeling their refrigerator out of their uh, apartment down the road at midnight so nobody saw them. He would run through neighborhoods with his younger brothers. His brothers thought they were playing a game. He knew they were running for their safety to get home. This is kind of the life that Giannis grew up in, and at 11 years old, he picked up a basketball. For the first time ever, he picked up a basketball. At 15, he started playing organized basketball, and by 18, he was drafted into the NBA. His hopes and dreams very quickly started to grow, and his goal was to provide for his family. That was it. He had been watching videos of Michael Jordan at an internet cafe in Athens and was like, this guy makes $30 million a year? Like, that would, that would do it. But his goal wasn't even $30 million. It was maybe $100,000. That's better than being evicted for 210 euros, he says. And so his hopes and dreams start to grow. We'll follow him a little bit throughout our message this morning. But I wonder what your hopes and dreams are, church. We live in a culture which it's really easy for us to hope and dream and imagine uh, the good things that are in store for us. We live in a culture of resources, culture of comfort. Uh, It's March, which means many of our seniors, whether college seniors or high school seniors, are preparing for graduation, and you can kind of see in them the hopes and dreams for their futures. They start to get really excited this time of year. It's called senioritis, too, right? We kind of check out of school. Good times. It's easy for us to hope and dream in a culture like ours. But I wonder how many of us ask, what are God's hopes and dreams for me? What are the good things that God has planned for me? In perhaps one of the most quoted verses in scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11, God prophesies through the prophet Jeremiah these hopes and dreams that they're good. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. There are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. We are in this sermon series, The Heart of God, and this is God's heart for you. It's to give you a future and a hope. I wonder how many of us know this verse or have heard it. Maybe you didn't even know that was a Bible verse, that God's plans for you are to give you a hope and a future. But I'm not sure many of us know the context in which Jeremiah actually prophesies this. Our scripture reading today is from a couple chapters later. And the ears on which a prophecy like this would have fallen, I'm not sure people would have actually believed it, that God's hopes and dreams for them were good, that God had a future and a hope 
for them. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Uh, Jeremiah's prophecies uh, through the first half or so of the book of Jeremiah are pretty severe. A prophet's role was to call people back to God. And if you had to call people back to God, it meant that people had fallen away from God. And in order to tell them that, you had to tell them, hey, you've fallen away from God, and so here are the consequences of falling away from God. Nobody really wanted to hear that. And so Jeremiah is prophesying to people who have fallen away from God. They are facing the consequences of their sin. And he's telling them destruction and exile and these bad things are coming. And they would much rather ignore him. So Jeremiah grieves with God's people. That's why he is the weeping prophet. And in the time that Jeremiah prophesies, prophesies, there are two kind of people groups in Israel. They're all God's chosen people, but they've split because of some king things. So there is the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel, you can kind of see in my little map over here, they've been exiled across the Assyrian Empire. They've been conquered by the Assyrians. They've been exiled and enslaved. Jeremiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is also Judah's reality. They have been conquered by Babylon and are being exiled across the Middle East and enslaved by the Babylonian Empire. It's a very tumultuous time. It's very political, lots of political unrest. God's people have this identity to be different, to be set apart, and yet they continue to be exiled. They continue to live in a world that is not full of God's restoration. The promise of God is to live in the promised land, and they just aren't there. It just doesn't happen for them. Enter Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, to give you a hope and a future. And these people who've been exiled for generations would say, Really, God? You want to give me a future and a hope? Because I don't really see it. I don't really know how that's going to happen for me. And that's also the context in which we find Jeremiah 31. It's our scripture reading that you heard today. If you have your Bibles, open with me, Jeremiah 31. I'm going to start at the beginning. If you have time today to read Jeremiah 31, it's a longer chapter, but it's so good. But read it in the context of who Jeremiah is prophesying to. Here's how this prophecy begins. In that day, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. What stuck out to me as I started to read this prophecy this week was in that day. Because it begs the question, what day? What day are we actually going to experience this hope that God has for us? And for God's people who have been exiled, in that day doesn't seem very promising. It doesn't seem very hopeful. But God continues, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. He talks about love, this everlasting and unfailing love. And again, you say, but God's people are exiled. It doesn't feel like God is showing up with unfailing love. But the prophecy continues. Uh, Jeremiah talks a lot about joy. God promises tons of joy. It's repeated over and over and over again. Sing with joy. Shout out with praise and joy. Tears of joy will stream down their faces. They will come home and sing songs of joy. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and exchange their sorrow for rejoicing. And then we get to verse 22, and the Lord promises something new. For the Lord will cause something new to happen. You start to say, okay, 
if I'm in exile as, as an Israelite, God's promising something new, but I've heard this promise before. What's this new thing, and when is it going to show up? And this is our scripture reading you heard. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. I will make a new covenant. This new thing, what is it and why does it matter for you and me today? Because we're not exiles in Babylon who Jeremiah is prophesying to. I wonder if we can relate a little bit though. There's this new thing that God promises. It's different than the old thing. Throughout the season of Lent, we've been talking about the heart of God. And on Ash Wednesday, as we began the Lenten season, these weeks leading up to Easter, I reminded you that Lent is a, is a good time to grieve. It's a good time to remember our sin, to acknowledge our need for a Savior. And then Pastor Scott preached about order, disorder, and reorder. This kind of uh, flow, ebb and flow of our lives, of seasons of faith. How we go from seasons of really good stuff to seasons that are very disordered, but God brings reorder or resurrection from some of, from some of those hard things. And last weekend, Emily uh, taught us about the deals that God makes and what these old and new covenants are and, and why they're so important. And so what is this new covenant and why does it matter for you and me? And why does it matter that it's different? And if God is going to do something new, I wonder how many of us say, okay, I'm here for it. I want the new thing that God is going to do for me. Some of us might say that. We might be in a place where we're like, life is great. If God wants to do something new in me, I am here for it. You can have it, God. Like, I'm showing up. And I think the reality of even the last few weeks in my life, of talking with so many of you recently, is that we might cognitively know that God wants to do a new thing in us. We might know that God has really good things, new things for us, hopes and dreams and futures and promises. But the reality of seeing that in our life is just not there. It's really hard. You're maybe walking through seasons of exile like God's people when Jeremiah is prophesying to them. It was last weekend, uh, I, I walked into worship and uh, I'd been really sick all week and I wasn't preaching last weekend and I'll, I'll never come and infect any of you. Like I, was, I felt good enough to be here, right? But it had been a rough week. And so we walked into a huddle. We huddle before every Saturday night service. And uh, the worship team had introduced a new song last weekend called Egypt. And it's about God's faithfulness to pull his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And what I said during huddle last week, verbally out loud to our team was, I feel like I am in Egypt today. I feel like I've been in Egypt. I feel like I am lost and wandering and enslaved to the world around me in so many different ways. I wonder how many of you can relate to that. Maybe it's sickness in your family. Man, my family has been super sick. I've been sick. We've had some pretty severe health issues in my family just in the last few weeks. I've walked alongside so many of you in your prayer requests. Health issues, family issues, big things happening in your life that don't bring hope. When God steps into that and says, I want to give you a hope and a future, it's easy to look at it and go, I don't really see that. That's not really for me today. Maybe in a season of reorder, but it's not really for me today. This exile, this feeling of slavery is so real. And so we, we say that the new thing is good and maybe I want Jesus, but he can just have a part of me. He can have a piece of my heart because the rest of it I'm just going to kind of keep to myself. Because I, I like my control. I like what I can do with the world around me. And the seasons of exile are going to keep coming. So why would, I, why would I give everything to God? Why would I truly believe 
with all that I am in this new promise that God has for me. Tyler and I were able to go to Les Mis on Friday night at the Civic Center. It was fantastic. I'm a big fan of the movie and, and all the music. It was so good. But as I sat, of course, I have my sermon like running through my head. It's Friday night. And uh, as I sat there and I listened to every single musical number, all I could think was, where's the hope? There is no hope in Les Mis. Nothing is hopeful. And so then the show ends, and we're walking back to the parking ramp, and of course we parked on the fourth level of the parking ramp, and so you have to wait for literally everybody else in the parking ramp to get out before you. So we're sitting there, and I'm reflecting on this to Tyler, and I'm like, I don't think, I was like, there's not a lot of hope in that. And he was like, we started picking this apart, and I said, well, maybe there's hope, but it's misplaced hope. It's hope in a relationship or hope in money. Maybe it's hope in revenge or revolution. It's very misplaced hope. And, and then I was like, it is called Les Miserables. Sounds pretty in French. It means the miserables. It's miserable. There's a reason it's called that. There's no hope in it. And so often in our day-to-day life, I think we feel this very tangibly. We maybe cognitively know God has hopes and dreams and a future for us, but our lived reality is very hopeless. It seems dark. It seems like we are enslaved. It seems lonely. It seems like God isn't really showing up the way that God promises to show up. And so we say, a new promise, great, but not really for me today. As Giannis kind of grows up in the NBA, fun fact, Giannis and I are exactly the same age, like days apart, uh, birthday-wise. And uh, when I was going off to the University of Iowa as a freshman, That's when Giannis was being drafted into the NBA as an 18-year-old. So I lived in Ankeny, Iowa. It was, I'm not exaggerating, four turns from my parents' house to my dorm. That's how close my parents lived to the interstate and how close my dorm room was to the interstate. Four turns, literally an hour and a half away from home. And I was super homesick, super homesick as an 18-year-old going down the road an hour and a half. Giannis is 18 years old leaves his home country without his family because they couldn't get visas to a culture that he does not know in a language that he does not know to play a game so that he can provide for his family. He is lonely in that. Finally, his family makes, makes their way over here. That They get visas. They all live here. He starts to really excel as an NBA player. It's fascinating the way they talk about how he kind of totally matured in the NBA. Like his body wasn't even fully formed uh, when he entered the NBA. So they truly shaped and molded, the Bucks did, this young basketball player. And so he gets really, really good. Giannis goes on to have two MVP seasons. He is the N- NBA MVP He's really, really good. And coming off of those two MVP seasons, he enters a season of exile, a period of loneliness, a period of complete hopelessness. At one point early on, he says he's in the promised land. And then he gets to a place where he is no longer in the promised land. His dad dies very unexpectedly from a heart attack. It was very tragic and traumatic for his family. His dad was the rock of their family. And the pressures of being a two-time MVP start to weigh on him. The expectation is that the Bucks will win a world championship, and they just can't do it. They continue to lose in final games. They, they get so close, and they just can't do it. And so Giannis's exile and his loneliness become very real in the face of what should have been pure hope and excitement. Take a look. 
the pressures of being an MVP, the pressures of winning a championship. When you care about so many people, um, as Giannis does, his family, the organization, uh, the city of Milwaukee, it can become overwhelming for a 26-year-old. It was a tough year, just emotionally and mentally. And all this pressure of Giannis, in order to seal who you are, you have to win a championship, it gets to you. Every person has a boiling point. I think that he reached that level that he was like, I don't think I can anymore. I was good with some stuff. I don't think I had enough time to grieve my father. I had to be there for my brothers and my, my mom. Seeing your mom sad and wearing black clothes and all oh, that's not a good feeling. And I don't think I had time to kind of take for myself, talk with my family. I said, I don't want to play no more. I don't want to play no more. There's no joy, it's torture. I thought he was going to quit. I thought he was done. I thought he wasn't gonna play anymore. What I said was, I'm with you. You're gonna stop playing. So what? You understand being a 12-year-old and saying, okay, we gotta go out there, work, and see what, what we're gonna eat tomorrow. This is nothing. I was like, if you quit, we quit. We're family, we do it together. I think it was a decision that I was willing to take, not for him to feel that excluded, not to feel alone. I remember telling him, have you ever grieved for your father? You dove into the basketball. You did everything to make sure that your family was okay, which was the right thing to do. But when have you ever stopped and said, I need help myself? I started talking to a sports psych. Started doing therapy. And it was one of the best decisions that I've ever done in my life to be able to uh, develop coping mechanism. He fought harder than anybody will ever know off the court. To see his fight and what he did to get through it was just absolutely amazing. Milwaukee with Giannis, they had the best record in the East, back-to-back -back seasons and disappointed in the playoffs. Why do they look different this year? This is a team, if they handle close games differently than they have in the past, the Bucks can certainly get to the conference finals. Giannis genuinely contemplated quitting basketball probably in the beginning of January, and 20th of June, they were in the Eastern Conference Finals. The exile, the loneliness was very real. And as I've walked through the last couple weeks with so many of you and with our own families, things going on, the words of Jeremiah have kind of just sprung through my head. In that day, the day will come, the day is coming, the day is coming, the day is coming. And again, it begs the question, when is that day? When we sit and we have conversations about the really hard things in life, it's not helpful if I look at you and say, well, the day is coming. The day is coming. In that day, in that day, it will be better. This is what the new promise is for. This is why Jesus really matters. This is the promise of the new covenant that we read in Jeremiah 31. Here's Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. 
I will be their God and they will be my people. God says this new promise that's for you, it will be written on your heart. The old promise, the old covenant was written on tablets of stone. The Israelites had to carry them around with them and put them in the tabernacle every time they set it up. This new promise is part of you, God says. It is written on your heart. It's as if God's heart is actually your heart. And your heart is God's heart. He has wired us to be united with him. There's no separation between us and God. He is written on our heart. And then, continues verse 34, For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. Everyone will know me already. The Hebrew word to know, this is one of Pastor Scott's favorite Hebrew words. It's yada. Not yada, 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 but yada. And it's not cognitive knowing. It's relational knowing. You will know me. You will be in such close, intimate relationship with me that there's no separation. Everyone, this is God's new promise. Everyone will know me. Not just cognitively like, yep, I know God, God has good stuff for me. No, you will know it with all that you are. God says you will feel this impact in your life because it's, it's who you are. It's written on your heart. And he continues, and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. I will forgive and I will never again remember their sin. Remember who Jeremiah is prophesying to. It's people who are living out the consequences of their sin. They are exiled because they have fallen short, because they are not living up to God's standard for their life. And so when God shows up through the prophet Jeremiah and says, I will never again remember their sin, that's our promise, church, is that never again will your sin be held against you. This is what Jesus does on the cross. He takes all of our sin past, present, and future, and it's crucified with him. It dies with him, and it does not resurrect with him. This new promise means that we are completely and totally united with God so that his future and his hopes and dreams for us are truly ours, so that we can really actually embrace them. And scripture is so cool, okay? Scripture is so beautiful. Quick side note. If you're new to church, new to the Bible thing, the New Testament begins with four books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the Gospels, and they document the story of Jesus' life. Matthew's first in the New Testament, but Mark actually wrote first, okay? So Mark writes a good decade before Matthew and Luke. And when Mark writes about Jesus' life and ministry, you know the very first thing that Mark quotes Jesus as saying? So the first Gospel written about his life, the very first thing Mark's going to write, that Jesus shows up on the scene and says, it's going to connect all the dots for us. Here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1. The time promised by God has come at last. Jeremiah says, a time is coming. The time will come. A time will come. The first thing that Jesus shows up and is quoted as saying, the time promised by God has come at last. How cool is that? The time promised by God, has come at last. We do not need to live in the, 
well, someday I can have the hope. Someday I can have the future. I'm in a season of exile, but someday I'll be out of it. No, you can be out of it right now. I'm not undermining the suffering. It's real. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm in it. My hope, my future for you, you and me being one together, I'm here in it right now. You don't have to wait for your exile to end to experience hope. Jesus shows up and says, the time is here. It's come at last. He says, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. So the promise in our exile, in our slavery, in our hopelessness is that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is in that. He says, repent and believe the good news. There's action Giannis had to take action in seasons in his season of exile and his season of loneliness. We also have to take action. Our belief without action is just kind of boring. So we repent. We've talked about repentance in the season of Lent. We turn away from the stuff that holds us back from God. We turn toward him and we believe. We believe the good news about who Jesus is. We believe that this new promise is for us today. It's also for us tomorrow. We believe that Jesus is also coming back again so that full restoration will happen and we won't have seasons of slavery. We won't have seasons of exile or loneliness from God. And in the meantime, we hold on to hope. We hold on to this dream that God has for us, the future that God has for us. We take action in that and we believe with all that we are, we know we yada this good news because we're actually united with God. His heart is our heart. And the very next thing that Jesus does, as recorded by Mark, is he calls people to participate in the kingdom. He says, this kingdom isn't just for me. It's not just Jesus showing up and doing it on his own. He asks us to be part of it. He calls his first disciples. He sees Simon and Andrew fishing. He says, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. And then a little farther up the shore, he sees James and John. He says the same thing, come and follow me. And they drop what they're doing and they follow him. This was a radical call, church, for people to just follow this guy named Jesus in a culture of honor and shame that they lived in to leave the generation old family business. That was a shame-filled thing. You don't do that. And Jesus' disciples did because they believed, because they knew they yadad, this relationship with God. They knew that God's hopes and dreams for them were better than anything they could ever imagine. And so they dropped their nets at once and followed him. It was radical for them. It's also a radical call for us. Drop whatever it is you're doing and believe and follow him. His promise is for you. Being united with him is for you. My favorite theologian, N.T. Wright, about Jesus uh, Jesus calling his disciples, N.T. Wright says this, to get in on the act, they, the disciples, had to cut loose from other ties and trust him and his message. The disciples, they had to cut loose from other ties and trust him and his message. What is holding you back? What is tying you down from believing that this promise is yours? from believing that you are united with God, that his heart is your heart, 
that his future and his hope is for you today. It's the season of Lent. We talk about giving things up in the season of Lent. Those things we give up are not to like boast about our good Christianity. Those things we give up are to cut loose from ties that hold us back from God. Maybe it's a good time to examine what might be holding you back from God and give it up. Jesus shows up so that nothing can hold you back. And do you trust that message? Do you trust that as this promise keeper, the one who promises these new things to unite you with God, that he's actually going to keep that promise? That as a promise maker, he's also a promise keeper. There is no darkness. There is no enemy that can hold you back from God's good things for you. In the last few weeks, uh, there is a refrain in a song that we just introduced last week. We'll sing it during communion. The refrain goes like this. The enemy thought he had me, but Jesus said, you are mine. The enemy thought he had me, but Jesus said, you are mine. And I can't tell you how many times I have sung that over and over and over and over again. The enemy thought he had me, but Jesus said, you are mine. This hope, it's not just coming someday. We have hope in Jesus' second return. But Jesus shows up and says, it's here. The kingdom of God is happening now around us, and you're invited to participate in it. The hope is for you in the face of hopelessness, trials, suffering, the hope is for really good things and that you be united with God in all of it. As Giannis deals with all of his stuff, as he comes out of this season of loneliness, releasing, cutting loose from the pressures of the world, the Bucks win an NBA World Championship. Take a look as all this culminates for him. It's over. The Bucks have done it. The long wait has ended after a half century. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions once again. The 50-point game in a closeout game to win an NBA Finals at home. Milwaukee's first championship across all professional sports in 50 years. Finals MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo. Small market, superstar, his commitment to staying in Milwaukee, and it culminating in a world championship. You can't write it in a, in a movie. I had one goal, and one goal only to get to my family. I wish dad was there to hug him too.
to the camera. Hello to the camera, Dad. Come on. Ah, it's been a long journey, man. A long journey. I can, I can remember the first time that my dad walked in the Bradley Center. And I was just like a stupid kid with just big dreams. Tiani worked very, very hard. Where I came from, what I faced in my life, I'm hopeful for them. They see me, and they see that it can be done. They see my brothers, and they see it can be done. Parto! Parto! Parto, That's bigger than just basketball. If you go to any of the immigrant neighborhoods in Athens, you will see a lot of adetokumbos. Maybe they won't be famous or rich, but all of them believe that they can do it now. I love where he says, I was just a stupid kid with big dreams. We're just ordinary people. You're not stupid, I'm not gonna call you stupid. But we're just ordinary people with really big dreams. God's really big dreams for us. And that brings hope. Hope in the middle of all the hard stuff. Hope that God's kingdom is here. We see droplets of it around us all the time. At the very end, that Greek commentator says, uh, there's all these kids in Athens now. Uh, Giannis started a foundation to help immigrants in Nigeria, Athens, and Milwaukee. And all these immigrant kids, he says, they have hope. They may not be rich or famous, but they believe they can do it now. And that's the power of belief, church. That's the power of God to show up and unite us with him for us to embrace his promise. One of my favorite books of the Bible is Hebrews. This was Hebrews verse chapter 8. If you would go to Hebrews, perhaps. Yeah, there it is. Now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God, based on better promises. God's promises for you are as good as they get, full of hope, full of life. There is nothing that the enemy is going to tear you down with when we are united with God when we embrace the promises and the future that he has for us.